Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik for what is our 1,000th show. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The U.S. comments on blockade of Russian enclave. Washington supports NATO member Lithuania in its standoff with Russia over the Kaliningrad region, according to a State Department spokesman. What does this tell us about the escalation of this conflict? For insight, we need to turn to our first guest. He's an international relations and security analyst based in Moscow, Mark Sloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the show. So the U.S. says that it and uh, that it appreciates anti-Russian sanctions imposed by EU nations, and that its military is committed to the defense of Lithuania after the country banned some Russian goods from passing through its territory to the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad. Mark, what does this signal to you, especially when? They throw in that the U.S. is committed to the defense of Lithuania. Okay, so the uh, Russian government is um, really taking this seriously because there are standing international agreements. There uh, is agreements between Russia and Lithuania. There were uh, similar agreements signed between Russia and NATO. Uh, when uh, NATO was expanded to include the Baltics, and uh, Russia cites that this is also violations of of international law and the World Trade Organization, that this they are blocking the transit of goods from one part of Russia to another. There were agreements that there would always be transport, you know, the free transport of goods across Lithuania, right, from one side of Russia to to the other, to this exclave uh, on the other side of Lithuania. Um, And now uh, that is being stopped and the pretext being used is sanctions. Uh, Now, of course, these goods were never going to be going to Lithuania for the purposes of selling them in Lithuania, they were going from one part of Russia to another. It just happens to be an extra territorial part. So Russia is seeing this as an attack on its sovereignty and its territorial integrity by NATO. Um, And there are Russian politicians uh, right now in the Duma who are calling this um, a, a that it is essentially putting Kaliningrad under siege, uh, that it is a blockade, and they are saying that it is causus belli, that it is a just cause for war. That is how seriously Russians are taking. Now, I don't believe that Russia will at this point go to war over this, but it has to be said that Lithuania has already stated that they are escalating the situation, that they are now including not just trains. 
the Lithuanian Thank government. You. Thank you. That they are – the Lithuanian president in particular said that they are now extending this to road traffic as well as to train traffic um, and that they will expand the amount of goods. Right now, this accounts for some 50 percent of uh, trade goods uh, that reach Kaliningrad from other parts of Russia. Uh, what is – uh, set to be blocked by Lithuania, and Russia has promised a response that will make the Lithuanian people suffer. Those were the words. <laughs> um, so this is not saber rattling. This isn't bluster. This is a threat. <laughs> um, and um, I, like I said, I don't expect military action, but there are significant economic actions that Russia can take uh, that will uh, bring home, if they want to play an economic war, that Russia can bring an economic war home to them. For instance, Russia surprise, supplies most of Lithuania's electricity, um, and uh, that is definitely one thing, but I doubt that that would be the only thing. They may be looking at a complete blockade of trade. Um, which would uh, make a uh, situation fairly difficult for Lithuania, I believe, economically. Yeah, they could join Latvia and uh, Poland and, you know, gather for sticks, forage for wood. Maybe they could eat them and burn them for light, too. They need them for light. So they got options, uh, Mark. They got options. But here, here's the thing. Um, in looking at it, this is the way I interpret it. To, and, and tell me what you think. In the same way that a lot of the attacks on the Donbass right now, that it's a, a distraction, and here's what I mean. It's obvious that um, Russia is methodically going about its plan in um, eastern Ukraine, and they are winning and they are going to win. I feel like the attacks on the Donbass, things of this nature, maybe even the, even the attack on the um, – the, the oil platform, are an attempt to say, oh, man, they're winning. If we can get them to commit some resources over here, to to look over here, to act over here, to, it may be a desperate attempt to take Russia's focus away from eastern Ukraine where they are winning, obviously, and they will achieve their goals to, some, to, goals to something else. And so that maybe Russia, I'm just throwing this out there, Russia says, we're not going to be distracted. We're going to do what we have to do here. And when we complete this, then we will look full, you know, completely into um, how we're going to address some of these other things. I think they'll act. And furthermore, time's on their side because the longer that these san sanctions backfire, the worse it's going to get. We see people in the streets and Brussels and everywhere else. So anyway, that's a lot. I'll throw it at you, Mark. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it is – first of all, I don't believe Lithuania is acting alone on this. Right, I, right. I do not believe that the, the government of Lithuania has any real political agency. It does what it is instructed to, you know, by uh, the EU and the U.S., principally because the EU does what it's told to by the U.S. And uh, this is obviously occurring uh, with n not just the full approval, but I'm sure the orchestration of the United States. And um, it is something that Russia is taking seriously, but at the same time, it's certainly not in any way going to distract from uh, its uh, intervention uh, in Ukraine and accomplishing its goals there. It is really more than anything, a, a way of expressing outrage um, mm -hmm. that there's a need 
to a continual need to up the escalation of doing something, even if that something is not going to change what's happening whatsoever. Um, in this way, it's a, you, you could take a look at it as an act of spite or a temper tantrum, except that this particular temper tantrum is going to come with costs involved. You use the words saber rattling and bluster, and that's uh, I. You took that from Ned Price, the U.S. State Department spokesman, dismissing what he said, Moscow's displeasure as saber rattling and bluster. Is that Ned Price once again ignoring the very clear statements of President Putin and and Lavrov and the other spokespeople? Or is that just Ned Price speaking for domestic uh, consumption? Yeah, I, I think what that is, is Ned Price hanging Lithuania out to hang, right? I don't think that Ned Price or the, or the Biden administration, you know, cares any more about the suffering of the Lithuanian people than it does about the suffering of the Ukrainian people. Um, uh, neither in East Ukraine or or in the rest of the country. And if the Lithuanian people lose power for an extended period of time over this, because most of their power is supplied by by Russia or Belarus, then um, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's no big thing for the Biden administration. They, their opinion of this is that Europeans should bear the cost of the suffering. And he's even referred to as this as a game between Russia and the EU, a waiting game. Well, first of all, it's not a game and it's not simply waiting. It is, uh, you know, economic suffering and hardship. And as much as Americans are facing, you know, uh, gasoline at the pump so expensive that they can no longer send their kids to university, uh, not that they really could begin with without yeah, taking yeah, out yeah. huge amounts of debt, um, but um, or, you know, the price that they're paying inflation, you know, the price for both energy and inflation in Europe is that much higher. And um, when you have the Dutch prime minister saying that uh, the uh, you know people of the EU have to accept that they're all we're all going to be a little poorer, but it's worth it. Um, I'm not so sure that the citizens of the EU, uh, that you know the the EU taxpayers feel the same way, and we're already starting to see large protests in Europe. And I believe that the defeat of Macron in the French parliamentary elections, with huge gains by both the uh, the non-systemic right and left, um, you know the far left and um, Marine Le Pen's uh, National mm -hmm. Front on the other side is uh, indicative of the start of, uh, you know, this outrage against, you know, the European centrist parties that take their cues from the United States. Well, Biden said at some point this is going to be a bit of a waiting game. What the Russians can, can, can sustain and what Europe is going to be, be prepared to sustain. Here's the interesting thing. They didn't tell the Europeans that. 
And here's the problems the Europeans are going to have. At the beginning, what they said was, we're going to sanction Russia. Russia's going to crash. The ruble's going to be rubble. And you'll be happy and we'll be happy. Now it's changed to, yeah, Russia's, eh, things may be a little uncomfortable. But man, you guys are screwed. Totally well, screwed. And to that, Boris Johnson warns, Ukraine fatigue is setting in. We have to show we are with them for the long haul, and we are giving them the strategic resilience that they need. Soylent Green was set in 2022. <laughs> I saw the movie. Soylent Green is, is people. people. Yeah, and hopefully it's not Ukrainian refugees because uh, they could eat them. Uh, the, I, the Donner Pass, I'm just saying. Hope it don't happen. Mark Sloboda, you got a minute and a half. Yeah, I mean, the Czech government said uh, that they're going to burn uh, whatever they have to to stay warm this winter. Um, if they run out of coal, uh, uh, maybe they've got either Ukrainian refugees or Lithuanians, I guess. Let's hope not. Yeah, they'll be burn, burning. You know what the people will be burning? They'll be burning the politicians, their politicians in effigy and maybe not in effigy. <laughs> Yeah, that is uh, something I could get behind. <laughs> Boris Johnson acknowledged that Russian forces were grinding forward inch by inch, adding that it was all the more vital that the West show that we know to, what we know to be true is that Ukraine can win and will win. OK, Bojo, go, yeah. go ahead on. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Ecuadorians continue to resist as national strike enters second week, defying the state of emergency, enduring brutal police and military repression. Hundreds of thousands of Ecuadorians continue to remain on the streets against neoliberalism. What's happening in Ecuador? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a writer. He's an author. He's a human and civil rights uh, lawyer that teaches at the University of Pittsburgh. Dan Kovalik, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So give us some insight into what's at the crux of the this national strike in Ecuador. Well, I think this is part of the larger movement in Latin America against neoliberal economics and domination by the U.S. Uh, remember that Ecuador had a left-wing pink-tide president, Rafael Correa. Mm-hmm. A number of years back, and his hand-picked su uh, successor, Lenin Moreno, uh, of course named after Vladimir Lenin, ended up being a huge disappointment. He ended up being a neoliberal himself. And uh, in fact, one of the most famous things he did, I guess, was to kick Julian Assange out of the Ecuadorian embassy in London, um, showing his true colors. And then there was an election after Lenin in which the leftist narrowly lost. He was actually expected to win, and he lost. And so I think there's a lot of frustration in Ecuador about the general direction of the country at this point. 
It looks to me like they um, they made an uh, an effort to move in a leftward direction. They moved, made an effort to keep pace with the rest of um, South America uh, moving to the left, but they didn't quite get what they wanted. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it seems to me that the people in South America really want to move to the left. Yeah, indeed. And again, I do think that in Ecuador, they've been disappointed with people who they thought were going to be more progressive than they than they were. Again, even the guy Correa picked, who who they felt really betrayed them. So I think that uh, change, as you say, is not happening uh, quick enough in that country. Talk about the role that the military is playing here, because uh, there's a piece in Orinoco Tribune entitled "Militarized Ecuador." And uh, talk about the role that the that the military is playing here. And as with a move to the left, it would seem to me that the more involved the military gets, the, that the military becomes, the bigger problem is going to be to actually control the people. Yeah, well, again, yeah, the military is taking a very repressive role against the population against this strike. And of course, there's always a concern that the military could engage in a coup against the civilian government, which is always a real possibility in a country like Ecuador. Uh, And again, I think the the president is not not really uh, truly left. Again, I think there were some thoughts that that he could be more progressive than he is, but I I think in the end, he's not. So, but I think the military obviously is even to the right of him. And again, if they get, uh, you know, their own mind, uh, they, they, they could end up uh, overthrowing him. And here's what I think, Dan. Anytime I see a bunch of protests and there's some right wing military in the area, eh, I start to think about color revolutions. I start to think about the hands of the U.S. State Department, the AID and NED and all these other NGOs. Do you think that this is an opportunity or this is a time when these um, the neocon regime change machine may feel? Well, this is a, a, a particularly with the losses that they're taking and scheduled to continue to taking in South America, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, that this may be a time when they say, ah, well, we lost Colombia. Maybe we'll try to nab Ecuador back. Well, I certainly think that's a real possibility. As you say, they see one country after another going to the left, including, as you say, Colombia, which was the most unlikely country to do so. Of course, now they're facing the prospect that Lula could be reelected in Brazil. So, yeah, I think they're desperate to hold on to any country uh, in the region. And, and you're right that, that the U.S. could be behind a military coup in that country. They attacked Leandis Salazar. He leads the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of, of Ecuador. These types of, again, these types of, of heavy-handed tactics, I think, in the long term, cannot serve the government well. So who is... Who is uh, Salazar? Well, again, he is a a, a very complex uh, leader who, again, I think has very much disappointed uh, uh, the people and I think uh, has a fragile, a very fragile hold uh, over the country. 
Um, you know, and I think we got to start think, looking at this the other way too, from the other direction. You've got the U.S. empire trying to maintain its its you know hold as it's you know trying to maintain its grip on power in in, in South America, Latin America, the global South as that slips away. Countries like Ecuador, don't they have to be concerned that they're out of step with the region, with what happened with the Summit of Americas, with what's going on when we see Lula, Colombia? If I'm a country or a leader in South America, don't I have to be concerned that I'm concerned with a bunch of countries that I have to deal with, live with on a day-to-day basis who are going in a completely uh, different direction? And you've got to do business and trade and borders with them. I mean, like the shoes starting to get on the other foot, if you know what I'm saying, Dan. Yeah, well, that is interesting. I mean, I think you're right. Like you said, um, the choice now is uh, becoming a stark choice between whether to coddle up to the United States or get along with your neighbors. And uh, with the U.S. empire declining, with U.S. influence declining, I think countries are more likely to go with their neighbors. And that does mean in this situation moving closer to the left. But that, to me, begs the other side of the question, which is, does the United States see Ecuador as fertile soil to sow dissent and use Ecuador as a base of resistance? Well, I think so. And again, Ecuador has been a country that the U.S. certainly has engaged in regime change uh, in uh, during the presidency of Rafael Correa, it was very clear the U.S. supported a police strike against him. I don't know if you remember that, mm-hmm. uh, in an attempt to undermine and possibly overthrow him. So certainly, I mean, I think we have to think that, that, that that's possible. The current uh, president and the current—now, here's my question. I'm not sure. They don't—I don't think they don't have a parliamentary system, do they, where the, um, where the government could be dissolved or they could have the no-confidence vote or anything like that? No, he was directly elected like our president. Okay. He is a president, not a prime minister, which, as you say, a prime minister could get a vote of no confidence, not the president. Uh, However, um, there's a long history of presidents in Ecuador not serving their complete terms, uh, again, sometimes because of military coups. So what does it signal to you that we're now in, I guess, um, this ongoing strike, that we're in the second week of the strike, and it's reported that that hundreds of thousands of people continue to remain in the streets, defying the state of emergency, doing their best to move beyond or to, to, to battle against this enduring uh, brutal police and military repression. So... What does it say that hundreds of thousands of people continue to stay in the streets? Well, I mean, you could be facing a popular revolution there, you know. And again, the question is going to be whether the military decides that they need to take power to prevent the people from taking over, you know. But I do think, you know, to me, it gives me some hope that that there could be a, pop- a popular revolution in Ecuador. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, your thoughts because uh, on um, – Actually, what happened in Colombia, you know, your thoughts on the Colombian election and, um, the, you know, the dynamics that that creates. I mean, it's a, I think it's a very dangerous situation because the U.S. has so much invested in Colombia with all of those bases that God knows they could be led to do something, do the unthinkable. But anyway, maybe I'm what are your thoughts? Well, look, I think that's a big fear. A lot of people and I, by the way, I'm friends with Gustavo Petro and uh, Francia Marquez. I know them pretty well, um, who just got elected. And. 
and I like them both. Uh, at the same time, Petro, I think, has moderated his politics a lot in part, I think, just out of pragmatics for fear that he could either be killed uh, or overthrown in a U.S.-backed coup. Um, a lot of people have compared him to Jorge Gaitan, who was the progressive presidential candidate in 1948 who was murdered. It's not certain who killed him, but it, many think it's the CIA that did. Um, he doesn't want to be the next guy, Tan. Um, so I think he will tread lightly. I think he'll be very careful. And a lot of people say that. They say that he is probably going to have a pretty moderate administration because he doesn't want to open himself up to a military coup there where the military is just incredibly powerful and has paramilitary death squad allies, right? Um, so I do think he's going to be very careful, and maybe that will prevent a U.S.-backed uh, coup. Looking at the map in terms of Ecuador is bordered by Colombia and Peru, what do you see in terms of its, its the geopolitical landscape in terms of where it's situated is it more likely that the result of this will be, to, to Garland's earlier question, that it, it will be more likely the result of this will be left-leaning, or do you see uh, neoliberal intent entrenchment? In Ecuador, per yes. se? Yes. I, I, I think it could go either way, and I, I couldn't predict. I, I think that there is now a battle for the hearts and minds of the people in Ecuador, and I think it, it, it's a fragile situation, and it, it really could go either way. So I think everyone will be watching uh, what's happening there. And, and, you know, I wonder how it ends, because based on everything going on, dynamics inside and outside of Ecuador, I don't see that the things that they're complaining about, which is the same thing that people all over, the, you know, in Europe are complaining about, I don't see how they subside. So how does this end? We got uh, one minute. Yeah, well, it may be kind of an all or nothing thing where people take things into their own hand and possibly push for a popular revolution uh, or the military crushes them and, and seizes power. I mean, I do think that either one of those is a possibility unless the president can somehow mediate some kind of, uh, you know, agreement, some kind of middle ground with the population. Well, with this going on for as long as it has and the number of people that continue to stay in protest, it, it seems as though they're going to have a, a real fight on their hands and these folks aren't going away quietly. Dan Kovalik, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. 
There is a very interesting piece in the L.A. Progressive entitled The Anatomy of Inflation. The focus of the U.S. media and economists for the past several months has been increasingly on inflation. In recent weeks, however, U.S. policymakers awoke as well to the realization that inflation is chronic, firmly embedded, and gr- and growing threat to the immediate future of the U.S. economy. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds a Ph.D. in political economy, teaches economics at St. Mary's College in Moraga, California. He's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. And he's the author of this piece. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, sir, welcome back. My pleasure. So you write, whether the Fed can succeed in taming inflation and do so without precipitating a recession remains to be seen, but is highly unlikely. Taming inflation without provoking a recession is thus the central economic question for the remainder of 2022, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Yeah, well, uh, that's the big issue that's being discussed. The Fed, of course, uh, can't say, yeah, we're going to provoke a recession, (laughs) even though they know damn well that's what's going to happen. So, you know, they're saying, well, we're going to do our best for a soft landing. And then if you listen to uh, uh, Fed Chair Powell here uh, this morning before the Senate committee and on uh, June 15th when the Fed raises last last rates, uh, you know, they keep keep saying, repeating, uh, the Fed can only do something about demand. It can't do anything about supply. It can't do anything about the sanctions, the war, and all the other stuff. They're they're covering their tracks, you see. Uh, They know it's going to happen, and uh, they're going to do whatever they can do because uh, that's the only game in town. The politicians in Washington have decided to throw the whole problem over the transom into the the hands of the Fed and let the Fed take the heat if there's a recession, you see. Um, when, you, when you've got inflation this high uh, and this embedded, because that's what it is now, it's chronic, it's embedded, they're worried about inflationary expectations, well, that's already here. Um, when it's that high and, and that intractable, uh, you you have to provoke a recession. You have to raise interest rates and provoke a recession to take out on demand, in other words, consumer spending, workers' wages, middle class, in other words, uh, what is actually a supply-side problem. Uh, we've seen this before. In 81, 82, we had the same thing. We had a global oil, again, oil energy uh, crisis uh, over in the Middle East, and uh, prices got jacked up, and we had inflationary expectations uh, that occurred. At that time, it had to do with uh, Iran. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, they took it out on the backs of, uh, of workers. We They precipitated a recession, raised interest rates dramatically double digits, and um, – crashed the housing uh, uh, sector, crashed the auto sector, and other sectors followed. We had a deep, deep recession at the time. Uh, well, they've decided on the same scenario. It's going to be a, an 81-82 deja vu engineered by the Fed rate hike uh, re- recession. And it doesn't matter what they say. I mean, again, they can't admit it. The politicians can't admit it. Even the banks can't admit it because then they'll be blamed for co- helping cause it, you know, a panic um, public opinion and investors by saying, oh, recession is coming. Uh, So all the bank reports coming out now are saying, oh, 50, 50 percent chance of recession. They know it's higher than that. 
uh, but they don't want to be blamed for it, you see. Uh, so that's where we are. We have this chronic embedded uh, um, inflation that's going to get worse because it's supply side, mostly supply side, meaning not only the sanctions and the war and commodities inflation globally running amok, right? Uh, not only that, uh, but price gouging by monopolistic corporations across the board, the worst of which is the oil companies. You know, I I listen to uh, Powell and I listen to the, the politicians and no one wants to put the finger on the bank, on, on the oil companies. No one wants to say, you know, well, that's over half of the inflation. And it is. Energy prices are over half of the inflation directly for gasoline and, and for jet fuel uh, and for food spills over into processing in, into food. Uh, utilities running amok, you know, utility prices rising through the roof. No one wants to put the finger on the oil companies, but they're the ones ultimately responsible because over half of the inflation is oil inflation. Oil because of the sanctions globally and the war globally, uh, but also domestically because the damn oil companies won't raise their output of oil. If they do that, you know, they lose the pressure on, on shortages of supply uh, to direct, uh, you know, push up the prices, which is what they're all doing and want to do. Dr. Jack, let me ask you this. 80-81, yeah, we had, I remember bad recessions. But since then, we've had, we've got a different mar a stock market than we had then. You know, we had the 2008 and we've had since 80 and 81, we had the, um, the deregulation and the, and the, and the, the doing away of, with, of the, um, the New Deal banking regulations and protections in the late 90s. And we had 2008. So 80 and 81, yeah, we had the inflation and all that kind of stuff, but we didn't have that 2008 style market with all the asset-backed securities and derivatives hanging over our head. Is it possible or even likely that we could have the combination of the stagflation from the 70s, that 80-81 um, style recession hit, and now that drives into a 2008 style um, uh, 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 market crash, and we get the, I hate to use this word, the trifecta. Yeah, you you can have a um, a dynamic a recession dynamic where you have uh, both of them merging, which we've never had before. You see, eighty one eighty two was an engineered recession by the Federal Reserve, uh, and you you can have different causes of recession. You can have recessions that are naturally occurring because uh, you know in the business cycle investment slows down naturally at a certain some certain point. You can have uh, a, a Fed and or Tax, tax hikes, you know, fiscal-driven uh, inflation, I mean, I mean recession. Um, there's different causes of recession. And, of course, in 2008-9, uh, we had a, a financial asset crash-driven recession because in the last 25 years, the U.S. and global con economy have become increasingly financialized and, and, and very sensitive and, uh, uh, to, to financial contagion. You know, you get one financial market that crashes because there's all debt and credit extended between the different financial asset markets. Uh, it, dra it drags down other markets. Um, you've got this uh, uh, financial contagion um, potential in the economy now because it's globalized and financialized and technology and deregulation play a role there too. Uh, 
I talked about that in my 2016 book, uh, Systemic Fragility in the Global Economy. Uh, so, yes, very much so. How will that happen? Well, you know, you engineer another Fed 8182-like recession. What happens then? Financial asset prices, we're always see, already seeing it in the stock market collapse. We've got derivative, uh, we've got uh, financial assets we've, we've, of all kinds. We've, we've got uh, currency financial assets uh, of all kinds. Um, so what happens is that when you crash the economy, uh, what happens is you, you, um, you got the debt from the buildup of the previous period, right? And uh, during the previous period when the economy is booming, you got uh, a rising business uh, profits and income so they can finance that excess debt that they got. And the same with households. Right, and the same with government. Finance meaning they can pay the principal and interest on it. But when you have a crash of the real economy, that cash flow to pay that debt, P&I, um, disappears. So you can't pay your principal and interest on your debt. You default on your debt. Uh, it crashes. And then there's this contagion effect that goes from uh, company to company and industry to industry, market to market, and then you get a spillover effect occurring. The financial markets crash, uh, and that exacerbates further the real economy. So you get a feedback effect between the real economy crashing and the financial economy crashing, and that's how you can get both of these kinds of recessions. You know, the engineered uh, rate hike, uh, real economy crashing, but then the financial economy uh, crashing uh, subsequently. In 2008-9, we had the opposite causal relation. We had the financial economy crashing that dragged down the real economy. Well, this time you could have the opposite, the real economy dragging down the financial uh, economy. Um, so the global capitalist system has become very much more fragile in the sense uh, it's more prone uh, to instability, both in the real side of the economy and the financial side of the economy. And that's what we may be facing. Uh, if that happens, it's not going to happen this year. It could happen next year or 2024. Uh, we'll see what happens here. But certainly we're heading for the first kind of an engineered recession to take it out on the backs of the middle class and the workers and consumers, uh, what is really a supply side problem here that has to do with the oil companies and the sanctions. To your point about the oil companies, it's estimated that right now gas is up, we'll say about a dollar and 80 cents higher today than it was this time last year. Biden is proposing a gas tax holiday, which I believe would result in a 13 to 15 cent per gallon reduction. But that's not addressing the price gouging that you're referencing that the oil companies are engaged in that is really at the crux of the problem. So Biden Want, in, in my opinion, wants to present something as some level of relief when he really knows that it's his buddies, his corporatist buddies that are really driving up the price of gas. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, absolutely. They, they they know what the problem is, but they they won't go after the oil companies. Oh, they'll talk the talk. Oh, the oil companies are guarded. Well, everybody knows that. Well, what the hell are you going to do about it, Joe? And well, and let me say, because to those listening that are saying, okay, Wilmer, so what would the solution be? A windfall profits tax on the gas companies. Is that right, Jack? Well, absolutely. And you could also have a, a, a 90 day price freeze. In other words, to to shock the, the, the inflation momentum. Uh, and that's been done before. That's even been done by Republicans like, uh, uh, you know, Richard Nixon and Truman and FDR. They've all done that in the past, you know, but oh, they, they don't want to touch those oil companies. And then a windfall profits tax. And, you know, even longer term, because this keeps happening all the time with the oil companies, longer term, uh, I believe that the, the the government should nationalize one of those big oil companies, nationalize them and become the price leader. In other words, force those other companies when they're trying to gouge everybody, uh, you know, the U.S. oil company. And there's a lot of countries that have nationalized oil companies. Yeah, you know, but we overthrow not- them, though. Russia. Russia, the gas, Venezuela, Gazprom, and the other one, they, uh, uh, Sitco, Venezuela, on and on. Iran wanted to nationalize its gas, but uh, Mossadegh got overthrown before he could. Yeah, it probably would take a revolution to nationalize one of the oil companies. Yeah, but it is economically right. feasible. It's right. politically not feasible in the U.S. given where we are, but it's economically a longer-term solution. Well, let, let me ask you something. In all seriousness, when, when you say nationalize an oil company, what would be the difference between that and the United States government starting a company, if that makes sense? Well, starting a company would be different. The the government would have to put a lot of, I mean, you know, to to drill wells and to uh, build refineries takes years and everything, right? Mm -hmm. So, and it would take a lot of money from the treasury to do that, right? Okay. Whereas, okay, there's one already existing, you know, you know, the worst uh, violator price gouging, uh, the the government takes it over, right? And sets the price for the market. Okay. Is it the biggest company in the world, Saudi's Aramco, which is the state oil company? Mm-hmm. And the re- one of the reasons that Russia is so strong is because of Gazprom. I call it the Alaska model because they're doing it to some extent in Alaska right now. They're making the oil companies pay Alaskans money because it's their oil. Why shouldn't that happen at all, with all of us? Except the whole idea is to control the price of oil, you know, mm-hmm. not not to uh, skim off taxes that you got to pay us uh, for price gouging everybody as right. in Alaska. You know, yeah, they get a bigger take, but uh, that's not the long term solution. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Billionaire explains why U.S. sanctions against Russia have backfired. They are pushing countries away from American 
investments. Washington's sanctions against Moscow are forcing other countries to cut their investments in the U.S. for fear of becoming the next target. Billionaire hedge fund manager Ray uh, DeLio has said in an interview with German newspaper Der Spiegel, how could these brilliant policy analysts and advisors not foresee this happening? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He is one of uh, our most pro prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So Minister Farrakhan is famous for saying one must never underestimate the blindness that attends arrogance. And so how could these brilliant policy analysts and advisors make such a humongous blunder that now is not only not working out as it relates to Russia, but it has now really changed the global economic dynamic as we look at what's happening in the global south, as we look at what's happening in relationships between Iran and, and China. I mean, this thing now, when we look at the BRICS, this thing now has totally changed, and I believe forever, the global economic landscape. Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, I think that's a fair point that you make, and I think the explanation is not that complicated. We know that there is a certain amount of ideological incestuousness at the top ranks of the U.S. ruling class, be it in the think tanks in Washington, the universities, the Pentagon, the State Department, the foundations. Those who do not toe the line are either ignored or excommunicated, and there, that leads to a certain amount, not only of groupthink, but it also suggests that they're high on their own supply. It also leads to an underestimation of so-called rivals and antagonists, with Moscow being number one in that category. Uh, how many times on this program have I repeated the estimate? the estimate of the late Senator John McCain of Arizona that Russia was a gas station masquerading as a nation. It was upper Volta with missiles, that is to say, comparing it to a now non-existent African nation was considered to be the ultimate insult. And obviously, this was a blunder, a blunder of significant magnitude. But I'm afraid to say that uh, even though things are not looking rather rosy for the North Atlantic Bloc right now, because they have this nostrum adapted from late Pentagon chief Dom Rumsfeld, that if you have a problem, the way to deal with it is to enlarge it. Uh, what this suggests is that this dilemma they now face could be to a riverboat gamble that could plunge the entire planet into consideration. Now, if you check your tapes, you'll see that on this program some days ago, I suggested that the North Atlantic Bloc would be trying to squeeze Kaliningrad, this Russian city, which in a sense is separated from the major body of Russian territory. 
uh, bracketed by Poland and Lithuania, and voila, what do we see as we speak? A pressure on Kaliningrad, uh, which is going to be the source, I'm afraid to say, of a major crisis. And let me make another prediction. And w- once again, one of the does not have to have uh, a crystal ball to come, up, to come up with these predictions. It's just knowing imperialism. Another crisis, I dare say, will erupt at the top of the world in the Arctic, where already you see contestation between Canada and the United States. We know that Canada, in some ways, is more hawkish, despite having a a population of a mere 38 million, than the United States of America. Recall that it's Canada that has refused to release a turbine to Gazprom that had been sent by the German company Siemens to Canada for repair that has caused Gazprom, the Russian natural gas giant, to curtail gas exports to Western Europe. Now, obviously, Canada is the culprit here, but somehow that's being ignored, and Gazprom is being denounced roundly in many Western European capitals, and Canada also happens to have a significant number of right-wing Ukrainian exiles, including Christian Freeland, who is one of Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, top aides. Uh, She's uh, uh, served uh, in many posts, including uh, Deputy Prime Minister, of the equivalent of Foreign Minister, etc., and is tipped to replace Mr. Trudeau whenever he plans to step down. And... It's no secret that over recent years there has been conflict in the Arctic region between Canada and Russia. I expect that, pardon the expression, to heat up in coming days and weeks. Uh, That will be another pressure point that seems to me another attempt to enlarge the crisis in order to escape the crisis. Please don't expect me to explain the illogic of that particular position. But there you have it, because the North Atlantic countries, you mentioned BRICS, if I'm not mistaken, yes. uh, in your introductory remarks, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Yes. And now I think that BRICS may be joined by four other nations, MITI, Mexico, Iran, Turkey, and Indonesia, which would give BRICS membership and GDP larger than that of the so-called G7, led by the United States, Germany, and Japan. So there are a number of crises that these nations are facing, and it's unclear to me how they're going to escape it unless they decide to just blow up the whole world. Uh, Let me put two things together. Um, The U.S. President uh, Biden recently said at some point this is going to be a bit of a waiting game. What the Russians can can sustain and what Europe is going to be prepared to sustain, saying, you know, there's going to be pain and who can take the most pain. Here's another article. Nearly 80,000 people in Brussels protest high cost of living. We know that there has been um, protests in the UK. There's been the the, uh, the railway people. There's also now the actual, the barristers, the uh, the, the lawyers that are government lawyers for, you know, uh, uh, provided for anyone that goes to jail. They're saying they're not making enough. They're talking about striking. So while President Biden says, well, um, let's see who can take the most pain, it certainly appears. Oh, might I add one other thing? Inflation in Russia is now going down. So the Russians are taking less and less pain. And it seems to me that this thing is going to kind of blow to pieces from the inside out and starting with the EU. Your thoughts, Dr. Horn? 
starting with the EU, and let me point you to the import of the recent French parliamentary elections, just like France broke away from Washington's apron strings in the wake of the disastrous 1956 French-British-and-Israeli attack on Egypt, just like France uh, preceded the United States in recognizing the People's Republic of China years before the United States chose to do so, with the growth of the left and the parliamentary elections in France, don't be surprised if France decides to gradually peel away from the North Atlantic bloc and seek to cut a deal with the Chinese-led bloc. And speaking of the Chinese-led bloc, once again, the logic of the North Atlantic countries is breathtaking. We're told repeatedly that China is the big enchilada, China is the ball game. Russia is insignificant, as noted, it's a gas station masquerading as a nation. So why are the North Atlantic countries bogged down confronting Russia when China is the whole ballgame? It makes little or no sense from their point of view, but I think it bespeaks the fact that they unavoidably and predictably miscalculate. Of course, you can see that, too, with regard to domestic politics, with surprise, surprise. There was an attempted coup d'etat, which goes against the, what we've been told in school about this dirty democracy uh, being inaugurated in 1776. So if they cannot figure out their own domestic politics, why should we expect them to figure out global politics? Germany on the verge of gas emergency. The so-called alarm phase in Germany is triggered when there is a disruption in the gas supply or an exceptionally high demand for gas, which leads to a significant deterioration of the supply situation by the market, but the market is still able to cope with the disruption. The interesting thing about Germany is not only its position within the EU economic strata, but also the manufacturing aspects of this and the pressure that the slowdown or shutdown in manufacturing is going to have on Olaf Schultz. Again, pick a country and this thing seems to be deteriorating and deteriorating at a rapid rate. So not only is it going to be a matter of people not being able to heat their homes in Germany, it's going to be a matter of can you get a Mercedes Benz? Can you get a BMW? Can you get your Krupp coffee machine, uh, Bosch order, yeah. refrigerator, or 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 uh, or tail lights, Doctor Horn? This again, how could they have made such a dramatic blunder? Well, here's a stock tip for you. Uh, <laughs> given the fact that I fully expect uh, many Western Europeans to be freezing in the dark in a few months because of the curtailing of natural gas exports from Gazprom of Russia, you may want to invest in woolen socks, or woolen mittens, woolen sweaters, and then begin shipping them into London, Berlin, Paris, etc. This is the scale of the miscalculation that has been made. And it also speaks to your point, which is that these are exporting nations, particularly Germany. And how are they going to export without adequate energy? How are they going to export when everybody knows that number two on the hit list is the People's Republic of China, which is a major export market of Germany in particular, which has helped to keep the German economy buoyant, which brings me back to France, because 
as France peels off from the North Atlantic bloc, we can fully expect it to influence Germany accordingly. And that will ultimately be disastrous for U.S. imperialism as the world moves in one direction and U.S. imperialism moves in the other direction. It's the equivalent of trying to ride a horse going in different directions at the same time. The rider, uh, speaking of Washington, uh, will be sprawling in the dust sooner rather than later. And as we get out, if you throw on top of that the longer-term deindustrialization of of the United States, as well as this idea of just-in-time manufacturing, I mean, all of these things now, as Malcolm said, the, the chickens are coming home to roost, or as Brother Ed used to say when I was in high school at Christian Brothers High School in Sacramento, you're a victim of your own event. We got 30 seconds. Well, certainly, and the building up of China, which is essential to supply lines for Apple and other U.S. corporations, is part and parcel of the dilemma and crisis now faced by U.S. imperialism, because now Secretary Janet Yellen is telling us that the United States needs to move to friendshoring, that is to say, only offshoring production amongst friends. But China was once a friend. That's why they created those supply lines there. Who is to say that Vietnam, which supposedly will be a beneficiary of friendshoring, will consistently be a friend of U.S. imperialism? As a student of history, I would not wager on that. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. It's reported Israel keeping the United States in the dark about its covert attacks in Iran. U.S. officials are watching for risk of escalation between regional foes ahead of President Biden's trip to the Middle East. This is according to CNN. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and independent journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So it's reported that Israel is ramping up its attacks on Iranian nuclear sites and scientists while keeping the U.S. largely in the dark about its covert actions. This is according to a CNN report. Laith, what, a couple of things. One, can that report be trusted or is this an attempt to give Biden some cover while he goes in uh, to the region? And if this report is true. What kind of ally creates these dangerous and deadly circumstances and then expects the U.S. to just blindly back the play? No, I think it's the second uh, choice that you gave me. It's clear that this report is an intelligence report meant to to give uh, the United States uh, cover and uh, make it sure that it's not culpable directly to the actions that uh, the vessel um, 
state of the Zionist colony may be taking. Look, if you notice what is happening right now in preparation for the visit of Biden, we can see today uh, MBS uh, landing in Turkey, meeting with his supposed foe Erdogan, uh, and the blood of uh, Khashoggi, the journalist that was chopped up in the Saudi embassy in Turkey, uh, now forgotten and washed off, uh, both uh, from the United States, which he is a citizen of, and from Turkey, who used his death as a um, a way to supposedly put a wedge between you know between them and the United States, uh, the Saudis and the United States. So what we see right now in the whole region is a arrangement of all the assets and vessels that the United States has in preparation for any confrontation with the axis of resistance led by uh, Iran. And, and uh, we can see that from the movements of the Turkey and North Syria, from the actions of the um, uh, American occupation forces in Syria, uh, their movements there, and from this uh, this report that is now, um, you know, being released, as uh, you pointed out, I find it hard to believe that the U.S. is coordinating the airstrikes in Syria, that they're working with Israel. If you remember when the they they were talking about the Iran nuclear deal, and Blinken and and those guys admitted that they were working with Israel on the Iran nuclear deal. So we see that everything that the U.S. does in the region, it coordinates with Israel, except this? You know what I mean? It doesn't make sense to me. No, it doesn't make sense, of course, and you have to be uh, really uh, have zero knowledge of uh, the region and the realities of it and how the vessels uh, behave uh, across the region um, to, to fall for that. You know, you mentioned Jamal Khashoggi, and I, I just want to reiterate Jamal Khashoggi, an American citizen, a journalist with the Washington Post, assassinated by Mohammed bin Salman. And now you've got uh, Shireen Abu Akleh, American citizen, assassinated by the Israeli, the Zionist Israeli government. Joe Biden says nothing. Joe Biden does nothing. Oh, yeah. And we see clearly that uh, all these uh, supposed infighting between the wings of the empire, the liberal and the conservative wing, you know, uh, let's say even um, uh, exemplified with Turkey and Saudi, um, that are, all of that is just uh, a show. When the actual decision has to be made for a uh, drastic uh, change of uh, uh, rules of engagement that will be set the tone in Washington D.C. And uh, I think um, you know everybody who's in the axis of resistance in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran, in Palestine, in Yemen are uh, knowing and understanding that uh, all of what we see right now is just the delay and preparation effects to what may happen after the visit of uh, Biden and, uh, you know, clearly the axis of resistance uh, members are not going to wait for the uh, United States to set the battle zone and uh, the, the first bullet. Uh, there's much uh, that uh, in, in, in all of these countries 
that uh, may trigger uh, a regional war before even Biden arrives. In the New Arab reports, Iranian state media reports that three Mossad-linked agents whose nationalities are still unknown will so st- soon go on trial for plans to assassinate Iranian nuclear scientists, according to intelligence assessments, amid tension between the two foes. We do know that there has been a number of high-profile assassinations that the Israelis in, in, in Iran that the Israelis have uh, uh, taken credit for. Your thoughts? Oh, yeah, this is an ongoing uh, war. And, uh, you know, much of it is covert between uh, Iran and the Zionist colony directly. Um, We, for sure, the Zionists have also suffered uh, uh, casualties in this war, but we will not be hearing much about it until the record uh, comes out historically later on. But uh, this ongoing battle is on um, multilateral levels. You know, we see constant uh, cyber attacks uh, between the two players, and we see uh, assassinations and attempts at infiltration on both sides. And, you know, in, in many cases, Iran has been very successful. In many cases, the Zionists have been successful. And um, the question uh, the, that uh, lays uh, before us is that if uh, actually one of the responses of Iran um, may you know trigger something bigger, if Iran actually uh, delivers a blow in response to the assassinations that just have unfolded in the last year, and the Iranians keep saying that they are keeping that tally, uh, you know we don't know how the Israelis will respond. How is this story being reported uh, in the region? And do you have any expectations of real viable information coming from a trial of this nature? Yeah, I mean, this trial will be carried in most of the Iranian uh, media live, uh, as has happened in previous uh, trials that uh, deal with the national security. So um, you know, in terms of how this mobilizes uh, resistance, yes, this will be uh, very useful for uh, the Iranian government and uh, in terms of showing to the population uh, how things are uh, happening, how the war is being fought behind uh, closed uh, curtains. Um, also, this will play out in Iraq because of uh, Iran's attacks on uh, Zionist uh, Mossad bases in uh, in North uh, Kurdistan, Iraq, and uh, because of the presence of uh, Turkey occupying there, all of these things are connected. And uh, you know, the more uh, that uh, ir- the Iranian government can unfo- um, uncover and show to the population. Uh, the more uh, it is able to uh, have guarantees that the population is on its side. I'm just curious, how does Turkey fit in into the Middle East dynamics? It's very uh, it's very confusing for me. And one, if, you know, from one perspective, they're members of NATO and they do have their, uh, you know, part of the U.S. Co- uh, uh, coalition. But from another perspective, they're, you know, invading Syria. They're attacking Kurds in Iraq. Uh, you know, there it's kind of hard for me to figure out, figure Turkey out. How do you see Turkey fitting into the Middle East dynamic? Well, it's playing the bulldog. Uh, position from the north as the Israelis play the bulldog uh, position in the center and the Saudis in the south. And so 
Um, you know, this has been the position of Turkey since the end of uh, World War II, uh, falling into the NATO camp. Uh, it has uh, constantly been a source of intelligence um, destabilization activities in both Iraq and Syria and Iran uh, and um, Armenia. And uh, this, uh, you know, client position continues under Erdogan. You know, the what the intent was with bringing Erdogan in power by the, and the intent here is by the imperial power holders, was to create um, a liberal or an Islam in liberalism, a version like how you take the Nazis and create the Christian Democrats in uh, Germany. Uh, similarly, they were supposed to create like a Muslim Democrats that are within imperial uh, order and accept the supremacy of, of uh, you know, the imperial uh, pecking order. Uh, and um, unfortunately for the United States, they didn't work out. And uh, of course, it's, that's uh, great for humanity that uh, Islam has not been captured yet as Christianity and Judaism into uh, the colonial mechanism. There's still uh, within uh, Islam a huge swath of, uh, uh, con you know, contesting uh, sources of power like Iran that are refusing to allow the religion to become an imperial religion uh, like the rest of uh, the Abrahamic religions. There is a piece in anti-war, uh, take action on Yemen, tell your rep to support war powers resolution. A coalition of anti-war groups is leading a week of action to push for an end to the Yemen war and is urging Americans to contact their representatives and tell them to support H.J. Resolution 87, a war powers resolution. You know, one of the things that Joe Biden said when he was running for president was that he was going to bring an end to the conflict in Yemen. And of course, he has done nothing of the sorts. Uh, your thoughts on this, uh, Laith Marouf? Yeah, I mean, he also promised to bring uh, the killers of Khashoggi to justice. And mm -hmm. I see that, mm -hmm. uh, of course, uh, the lives of uh, Yemeni citizens that are, are irrelevant, uh, you know, so you could see, of course, that he will definitely not care about the Yemeni population. Of course, it's a commendable uh, effort to try to pass such a thing. The United States and Canada's military uh, supply of weapons have been crucial in the genocide in Yemen. Um, uh, you know, also in Yemen right now, it's the second uh, extension the, the, of, of the ceasefire, uh, which has been a uh, good at least to uh, limit the number of people directly being killed by uh, ordinances. But, uh, you know, until now, the Saudi-led coalition, uh, American-backed uh, invasion, have been refusing to deliver on their obligations to open the port and the airport uh, of, uh, um, you know, Sana'a for international flights and the port of Hodeida for shipping uh, to ease the uh, shortages in specifically oil supplies uh, products. Um, and uh, we've heard in the last few days uh, threats from uh, Ansarullah and the government in Sana'a to attack uh, Emirati and Saudi ships 
that are docked in uh, Hadramaut, uh, looting the oil and gas of uh, Yemen, that if the the uh, Yemenis don't have access to their own oil and gas, they will stop uh, the looting. Uh, and so, you know, in the next few days, uh, again, look at how the whole region is connected, all these issues. And as Biden uh, nears uh, his trip in the middle of uh, next uh, month, um, you know, we we should all be uh, kind of holding our our breath because either action is going to be uh, triggered prior to his arrival by the axis of resistance or the uh, American-led coalition in the region will instigate a uh, war after his uh, departure. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Voters in Alabama, Georgia, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. selected their nominees yesterday for the November general election. Is there anything that we can glean from these results? Are there any takeaways for insight? Let's turn to our next guest. He's a criminal defense and civil litigation attorney. He served as an assistant state's attorney in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, and he's on the board of the Transformative Justice Coalition. He is attorney Daryl Jones. As always, Daryl, welcome back. Thank you for having me. You know, it's always a pleasure to be here. And let me tell you, the uh, the efforts that you guys are putting into educating the voters and the public about what's going on is just truly appreciated. It really is. Well, thank you very much. And it's guests, guests like you that allow us to do it. So we, we truly appreciate that and, and appreciate you. Are there any overall themes that we can take away from what took place yesterday? You know, one of the, the big overall themes, I think, that, uh, that you see that's out there, I think, is out of Georgia. Uh, and that's dealing with uh, uh, Raphael Warnock and, and Herschel Walker, mm-hmm. and you know the runoff and the uh, election series that they are in for the U.S. senator seat there. And I say that because of this. You know, we, we know that uh, Herschel Walker uh, obviously was uh, supported by you know, former President uh, Donald Trump, and uh, Raphael Warnock was elected to a position. Uh, that was uh, sort of a, a filling of a seat for two years, and then he had to stand for re-election. But you know, Walker becomes somewhat significant because uh, he had uh, you know, a pretty full field that he was running against for the U.S. Senate. He was you know, highly uh, favored. Uh, and I think that what you see glowing and coming out of uh, Georgia with Herschel Walker uh, is the glow of the Heisman trophies, is, is the glow of the stardom uh, from, uh, from, uh, from University of Georgia, where he was a running back, and, and how he's just really revered for what he's accomplished in terms of his athletic prowess, not necessarily his intellectual prowess or his political prowess, nor his business prowess for that, for that matter, but the more the, the star power of, of what's there. And that's 
that's what has buoyed him now as we look at the polls and we see the tie, uh, his virtual tie between uh, he and the uh, the seasoned senator and, and, and certainly highly educated uh, Senator Raphael Warnock. Uh, so, you know, that's sort of what we see happening there. On the other side in, in Georgia, and dealing with uh, Brian Kemp uh, and uh, and Stacey Abrams, uh, it's really interesting to to watch this because many expected a repeat of uh, of the last election where Brian Kemp uh, certainly you know used some uh, some election maneuvering to make it more difficult for black and brown voters throughout the state of Georgia to be able to vote, actually you know, closing polling places and things along those lines, uh, and to defeat Stacey Abrams. But I think. I think that what's happening now is that you know Kemp has fought off, uh, and, and, and whether it was uh, uh, you know his intent or not, but the the whole Trump uh, uh, machinery that that came after him uh, began uh, began to become the fight there. And so, sort of what you see happening in Georgia, with the exception of Herschel Walker, is a rejection of former President Trump. And you know, interestingly, when we go through the analysis there and we start looking at how the Trump candidates uh, have done in the state of Georgia, they have not fared well. Uh, you know, the, the the whole piece to it certainly being that uh, at at one point with uh, with Katie Britt uh, as as she uh, was running as well in, in, in out of Alabama, we saw Trump changing sides, right? Because he had uh, the Mo Brooks that, uh, that was the candidate that was running against Katie Britt that, uh, uh, that, uh, you know, obviously Mo Brooks was a Trump guy, and Trump was a Mo Brooks guy, and it looked like uh, Mo Brooks was going down, so so Trump jumped off Mo Brooks, right? But interestingly, when he jumps off Mo Brooks, what happens? Mo Brooks picks up momentum, uh, and and you know qualifies for a runoff with uh, Katie Britt, who was almost you know destined in in terms of the the polling numbers to be the candidate coming out of Alabama. And needless to say, you know Trump uh, likes a winner and someone who he sees in front, so he changes to Katie Britt and she wins. So the question becomes, as you're going through the South, you know, does does the former president carry as much weight? Is there as much magic? Is there as much as much shine? Uh, to to the to the object of of the presidency and the influence of Donald Trump as as uh, there once was, and I don't know that the answer to that question right now is yes. I I, I think that what we're seeing uh, certainly is some dulling of that shine uh, that has taken some hits. Uh, it's picked up some losses, and as a result of that, you know, I'm not certain that 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 shine is as great. So I think that's what we're seeing. That some of the things that <clears throat> we're learning uh, as these uh, elections. Uh, have have moved on, uh, you know. So, in doing that analysis, uh, you know, obviously Washington D.C. is its own thing. You know, it, it's it's you know, it, it's going to do what it does. But Alabama, Georgia, and Virginia, you know, certainly have shown that uh, that there's some kinks in the armor when it comes to a simple endorsement and the the strength. Uh, of the former president and his control over the uh, over the Republican Party, and it's interesting now because you're starting to see uh, many Republicans start starting to find their legs, their backbone, and be able to realize they can stand up uh, against uh, a President Trump and stand up against the machine that he represents. But it's you know it, it's it's going to be something that uh, that's going to take a lot of guts, and so we're going to see uh, how they respond to the voters because obviously you know any differentiation uh, is supported by voters and, and when they see voters you know standing up and saying you know that ain't right uh then uh, the elected officials tend to follow it's not the other way around but uh, the elected officials will follow the voters the voters don't follow the elected officials 
So I think uh, that's a part of what we're seeing happen now. The interesting part, though, uh, Doc, is going to be you know the influence of this January the sixth uh, committee and what impact it has on the primaries that are that are yet to come. And I think that a lot of the information that's that's now coming out certainly could have an impact, and you're going to see people distancing themselves uh, from, uh, for, from the former president, and that's going to have an impact, obviously, with his influence, and could have uh, an interesting impact on the election overall. Uh, to be honest, I tend to think that because one of the things is it's happening now in June, and, you know, in politics, a couple of months is, a, is, is you know, a millennia, so I think it's so far off, I don't think it'll have, personally— I don't think it'll have as much influence as a lot of people simply because of the time and there's so many things going on. Let me ask you this. Turnout in Georgia, who does that benefit? Are there any projections for what could, you know, what the turnout could be, what could increase or decrease turnout? Because I don't know who it benefits, you know, if it's higher turnout or lower turnout. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I do. And, you know, I've been in uh, pretty constant contact with some of the people that are on the ground uh, in Georgia, you know, Black Voters Matters, as well as the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda and NAACP. And, you know, their turnout is actually going to be significant. Uh, It's going to be a significant turnout. Now, I don't know if it's going to match uh, the numbers uh, uh, from previously, from 2020 or so, but I know that the turnout is going to be uh, high. And part of the reason for the high turnout, particularly with the, from the community of color, uh, is not simply because of Raphael Warnock being on the ticket, not simply because of Herschel Walker being on the ticket, because both of them will bring uh, African Americans in particular and other voters of color out. But in addition to that, you know, Georgia had the, uh, had, had the period that they went through where, where they tried to uh, suppress uh, African-American and people of colors and their access to the polling, uh, polling places. And by trying to reduce the drop boxes, reducing access, reducing the hours, reducing the polling places, what it had the net effect of doing is angering this community that probably would have been quiet in a midterm election to say, I'm coming out because you're trying to stop me from doing it. So I think that you're going to see uh, a surge uh, in, in the black, brown, and young voter turnout because of the, uh, of the impact of what the Georgia General Assembly has done in trying to deny access uh, to the right to vote. So you're going to see an increase because of that action which is, you know, of course, runs counter to what they were trying to do. And we've already seen it, and just to support this, we've already seen it with regards to the vote by mail. Because they've made it so difficult now to vote by mail in the state of Georgia, what now is happening is that the vote by mail numbers have dropped dramatically. It's like, you know, down to like 2% or 3% or something like that. And what they're seeing is that people are actually coming out. They're going to vote in person. Because of all this uh, junk you're doing with the vote by mail and and whether or not it's going to count and and name matches and all this other stuff, I'll just go in person and do this. So they're seeing those numbers uh, increase uh, and people respond to the suppressive tactics that the General Assembly has has put in place for the voters in Georgia. So, you know, it really is going to backfire, I think, with regards to what they were trying to do in suppressive voting, and it's going to end up having a a greater uh, greater turnout uh, from the communities that they were trying to prevent from uh, easily accessing the right to vote. Another reason why I think turnout is going to be so important is because the racial dynamic is so clear uh, when you look at the percentages, I think Warnock has uh, 83 percent of the black vote, 
but only uh, where am I here? Seven percent. No, he's got 83 percent of the black vote and Herschel Walker has seven uh, percent of the black vote. And and so the if 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 African-Americans turn out and, and it's a very close race. So African-Americans have to turn out. Now, I will say this, you know, if I were voting for a running back, Herschel Walker would beat Raphael Warnock hands down. I mean, if I'm looking for a running back, Herschel Walker is my guy. I've loved him since he was at Georgia, but we're not looking for a running back. And when you listen to Herschel Walker, it is frightening how ill-prepared he is. Other than the racial dynamic and the party dynamic that is tied to the racial dynamic, I don't see how Herschel Walker gets the support that he does. Again, because when you listen to him, he's a big fat zero. And the other thing why, why a turnout is so important is because between Kemp and Stacey Abrams, I think Kemp is only up five points. So mm-hmm. we've got just one minute left. Uh, Daryl, am, am I right to, to in, in terms of looking at the interpreting the numbers that way? Yeah, no, you're absolutely on point with uh, with the interpretation of the numbers. And, you know, the big thing that uh, that I think it shows certainly is that Herschel Walker is up, number one, because of the party affiliation, and number two, because of the star status mm-hmm. of, of, of him being UGA, has nothing to do with his qualifications and what he could bring to the state of Georgia and what he'll be able to bring to the state of Georgia. Talk so, about a you know, zero. Turnout is... Turnout is, is, is what it's all about. <laughs> and we will see if that ire and that anger that you referenced earlier carries over into the next election, or will the African-American community fall victim to that very short-term memory that tends to plague us uh, time and time again? Let's hope not. Daryl Jones, sir, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Okay. Thank you so much, guys. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Global Times has a very interesting piece, U.S. in futile rehearsal to decouple China and Xinjiang's forced labor law as the U.S. begins enforcement of the so-called Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act to scrap imports from China's Xinjiang region, citing forced labor concerns. The Chinese government condemned it as an attempt to create forced unemployment and is economic coercion. What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He is a teacher. He is a human rights activist. He is K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. I find all of this really interesting and really looking forward to your analysis of this because I think it was the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle uh, Bachelet, who recently came back 
from a highly orchestrated trip to China and found really, as far as I can discern, none of these accusations to be credible. So there was all of this hype about her going, but then one would think she's still there because nobody talked about the fact that she came back and didn't find anything. Are those two things related, KJ? No. They're they're absolutely related. I mean, the attack on Michelle Bachelet indicates how extreme the information war against China is. Remember, China was condemned for not allowing the UN rapporteur to visit. It was claimed that it was hiding a genocide and that its refusal was prima facie evidence of criminal behavior, its refusal to allow visits. Then when they allowed her to visit, then all of a sudden she was told that she shouldn't go and that it was a complete setup. Now that the UN has visited and Madame Bachelet has seen, visited Xinjiang at Wolf Spoken, to whomever she wanted, she failed to condemn China's policy on Uyghurs. In fact, she actually praised aspects of China's human uh, rights policy. So as a result, her neck has been demanded. She will not seek reappointment to the UN position. And for me, this is just a signal of how far along we are on the road to war. You know, info war is the subkinetic dimension of war. And it's very similar to the run-up to Iraq war when UN inspectors and experts were drawn and quartered for not delivering the right conclusions. Bachelor is receiving the same treatment. Information is a weapon of war. And those pointing their weapons in the wrong direction, like Bachelet, are considered to be traitors and are treated as such. But you're absolutely correct. She came back. She said, you know, there's nothing untoward going on here. And the facts have always shown that, you know, the population uh, has increased from 2 million uh, since the start of the PRC to 12 million. And the lifespan has increased 150 percent. There is no genocide in the history of the planet where those two facts can obtain along with the accusation of it. So it's completely related. But what we have to understand is that this attempt to sanction everything coming out of Xinjiang with a presumption that it is built, it is made with slave labor, is is a form of economic warfare against China. That is to say, it's trying to cut China out of the global supply chain, and it's also trying to create mass unemployment in Xinjiang with the hope that this will stoke discontent, which will then lead to further radicalization, which the U.S. desires once and wants to utilize. You know, and I think this is related. When I, the first thing that popped into my mind when I saw this is that it, it, it reminds you how fundamentally dishonest the neocons are. And in that instance, as an example right now, if someone were to say, well, Russia needs to do a diplomatic deal with the um, with the, the neocons in D.C., how could anybody 
even consider doing a deal with these people when they are dishonest at the most fundamental level, which leads any reasonable person to believe that any deal you make with them, they will not keep. And they'll simply do like they did with they. In fact, they had a deal that said they wouldn't go any further east if the Russians would be okay with Germany reunification. So, again, when I look at this, I just see that that China, Russia, anyone looking at these people have to say, well, they're fundamentally dishonest. You have to deal with them based on what you can see and control yourself, because once they walk out of your sight or leave out of your sight, whatever you agreed with them is gone. Yes, exactly. It's what Lavrov said. He said that uh, the United States is not agreement capable. It's like trying to cut a, a deal with you know, a shady dealer who, you know, you can't let your eyes, uh, you can't trust them as far as you can throw them. Uh, in a related vein, uh, Jake Sullivan and Blinken and the Biden administration have given repeated assurances that they do not seek to undermine China, that they do not seek to undermine China's development, that they are not seeking a Cold War. But this act is exactly that. It's fundamental, deep economic warfare against China. And uh, the result of this uh, is B-L-O-W-B-A-C-K, blowback. And I'm going to uh, suggest that people start to get used to wearing um, woolen underwear because cotton is about to become very, very scarce. China warns of Taiwan demise after official claims, to your point about this verbal warfare, official claims missiles can hit Beijing. The war of words between China and Taiwan continued this week after a senior elected official in Taipei suggested the island could respond to an invasion by launching missiles at Beijing. Uh, I don't know, uh, KJ, that that would be a good idea. No, it would be an extraordinarily foolish idea. Uh, he said, uh, and this is a, a, a veiled threat, that if there were any, if China were to make a move on Taiwan, that Taiwan has the capacity and the military, uh, you know, the missiles to, to, to hit Beijing. Uh, and he also hinted that he could hit the Three Gorges Dam, which is the world's greatest reservoir, if that thing were to collapse. You were, we would be looking at millions, if not tens of millions of people killed, and certainly would be a war crime. But this is the tenor of the language that is coming out of uh, Taiwan province, uh, assisted and encouraged by the U.S.'s belligerent uh, salami slicing and red line crossing actions, deeds and words. And I tend to think that in the event, uh, you know, the U.S. has even said they look at Ukraine like Taiwan. Uh, 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 here's the thing I, uh, that pops into my mind. The Taiwanese got to be, the leadership have got to be the stupidest people on earth. I mean, if you're looking at the Ukrainians, which sadly have to be the second stupidest people on earth, and I'm talking about the people who are in charge of Ukraine, not the people of Ukraine to a large extent other than the Nazis. Those people are victims. But they're hanging you out to dry. They, I don't really believe that for the most part the U.S. is going to give up a single American life for the Taiwanese in the same way that I don't think they'll do it for the Ukrainians. They want to create all of this mess and try to utilize it to go after the—economically go after China or 
Russia or whatever. But these people are just pawns whose lives will be sacrificed at the altar of neo neocon hegemonic desires. And they're like, yeah, if we get in a fight with China, the U.S. will be right there to back us up. And I'm thinking, yeah, good luck with that one. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that's very, very much the case. It's an extraordinary stupidity. And I would say, I would throw in, uh, you know, there's a dash of, of um, maliciousness or evil there, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I don't like this type of language. But certainly, uh, they would be pawns, as you point out. They would be uh, used as uh, cannon fodder. Uh, and that is the plan as NATO uh, seeks to expand into uh, the Pacific with Japan, Australia, South Korea, and uh, Taiwan essentially becoming de facto members of NATO. Uh, what would that look like? It, well, it's we've, we've we've seen the future in in Ukraine. Uh, it would be lots of cannon fodder and a lot of leading from behind. There's another piece that I find very interesting. Video shows Zelensky call on world to help Taiwan before China invades. There, there are two things here. Uh, Zelensky says the world must use preemptive measures against Beijing before it attacks Taipei. All of this discussion about a China attacking Taipei, well, have the Chinese said anything about attacking Taipei? It, it, just, they're tr- it, is, it is though they're trying to make this out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And there's a photo. There's a photo here of Zelensky. It's a split photo of Zelensky and uh, Tsai Ing-wen. I guess that's the president of of uh, Taiwan. And she's got this. She's in all this military garb, and it, it just reminds me of Michael Dukakis in that M1 Abrams tank and how foolish he looked. She looks just about as foolish. Your thoughts, KJ? No. Yes, it's the militarized Snoopy look, if I recall cor- correctly. <laughs> right. And you know, I would point out that, you know, the military guard that both of them are wearing probably contains Xinjiang cotton. But <laughs> it is exactly as you point out. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy and its projection. Uh, the, uh, the Taiwan province leaders are trying to trigger an attack uh, they are doing everything humanly possible in order to provoke China. Uh, they're going to the Monterey talks and, you know, uh, preparing arms sales and military drills. Zelensky urges preemptive measures. He doesn't describe what those preemptive measures are, but we can imagine what they are. Beijing is not amused. And all of this is once again the kind of foolishness, uh, the foolhardiness, uh, and really, you know, we could say a kind of a death wish on the part of these subaltern states to do the bidding of the global uh, neocon hegemon. And 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 it really exposes um, Zelensky as a, a you know a DC neocon puppet because I mean his country is being turned to rubble and he's talking about something else that the neocons hey your country's being turned to rubble well, that's not important right now Taiwan over on the others but that's got to be dealt with so it's obvious that he's not even he's not in any way related to Ukraine he is simply a puppet for the neocons in Foggy Bottom well misery loves company I think I think what Zelensky is. Doing doing is proving that adage to be true. (laughs) Go ahead, KJ. The dummy is speaking the words that the ventriloquist is making it say. Uh, Zelensky is a comedian 
uh, and and uh, an, uh, a dancer, erotic dancer. He has no qualifications uh, doing anything in foreign policy or executive leadership. And his sole function, as far as I can tell, is to be a dummy and a puppet for the neocon agenda in Washington. And that is to the immense tragedy and suffering of the Ukrainian people and people all over the world. KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And as always, KJ, we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece in Popular Resistance, The War in Ukraine Marks the End of the American Century. It opens, here's your reserve currency, thought for the day. Every U.S. dollar is a check written on an account that is overdrawn by $30 trillion. What does this signal relative to the end of the American century? For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an independent journalist and an author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So is this hyperbole? Is it too early to call this the end of the American century? Or as we look at what's really happening, there's an incredible ideological restructuring. There's an incredible economic restructuring happening, whether it's the global South, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's the BRICS nations. Uh, there's an awful lot of restructuring going on that the American empire can no, seemingly can no longer control. Your thoughts, Daniel Lazar? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it's too early to call at the end. But certainly there are signs of something big on the way. I mean, the, the war, war in the Ukraine is turning into a major disaster, uh, especially economically. And we have no idea how the situation will work out with Lithuania. But that is a, that is a wild card that could just end up blowing everything up. Uh, so we have no idea what, what that will mean. But the economy is in serious trouble and the sanctions are royally backfiring. Uh, today's New York Times has a has a major piece talking about how they are backfiring. And it's a it's an, it's a remarkable admission by a newspaper, which has backed this war since from the start, played up all of Russia's reverses, uh, you know, talked about, you know, what a bungler and a fraud Vladimir Putin was. But now it's quite clear that she was on the other foot and there's great consternation. Uh, in Washington. And when you toss in the political problems in the, in the U.S., the fact that Joe Biden is, is faltering badly, that the political system is unstable, we don't know what will happen in, in, uh, in November. We certainly don't know what, happen in, what will happen in November 2024, but it could be really colossal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, big things are happening. 
certainly the empire is turning really shaky. You know, the other thing I think that happens here is we've got this kind of crisis of the elites where and that I think it's only going to get worse, Dan, and that is, you know, in order to for the U.S. to be the hegemon or even the power player that it that it that it really wants to be, I think the hegemonic uh, desire is uh, running into a lot of brick walls. But the people have to have some level of faith in the government, and that has been shrinking. And now that the government has said to the people, don't worry about all of this Ukraine stuff. It's not going to affect you. Um, Russia's going to go down as a result of these sanctions, and you'll be fine. And now the people are starting to say, uh-oh, they're backfiring. And the government is having to start to backtrack through its mouthpieces like the New York Times. Well, perhaps, you know, these sanctions are going to affect us just a smidgen. It's going to, I think, have a devastating effect on the people believing that the elite ruling class has any legitimacy or any ability to handle or, or to even govern on a day-to-day basis, Dan. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look what happened in France with the, with the, with the parliamentary elections. I mean, the, uh, the center has ha- emptied out. Uh, Macron lost his, uh, lost his majority. And there was a huge surge on the far right and the far left. So, um, so I think that, you know, that sort of, that sort of is, is an indication of where things are going. And, um, and that'll certainly affect the, uh, France's, uh, uh, role in this war because, um, this is a undoubtedly, undoubtedly a referendum on the Ukraine, on Macron's role in it, on NATO, on, uh, on France's subservience to America, et cetera. And I think we'll see something similar happening in the U.S. There's a piece in this uh, popular resistance that talks about the reason the dollar has remained the world's premier currency is because of the cartelization of central banking. And it seems as though China is stepping in to offset that dominance. And that is all that is going a long way in uh, undercutting or moving currencies off of the dollar. Well, the dollar is the dollar is still strong. But the dollar is still strong. But um, and, and American finance, American, you know, economic power, technical power, financial clout, et cetera, is still pretty impressive. So I wouldn't write them off all we you know, you mm-hmm. know, right away. But however, there's no doubt that 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 China is a rising power and that the U.S. is badly miscalculated its war and the um, and the. The, the America has lost control of the international energy markets, um, and that the China-Russia hookup is pretty, pretty formidable, you know, both uh, economically uh, and politically in terms of its impact on global opinion. So, yeah, the U.S. has gotten itself in real trouble. There's no question about that. There's another big one, Dan. And I think, you know, this is, you know, about the U.S.'s, you know, uh, the, the hegemony of the dollar. And that is the global economic paradigm has changed. I mean, dramatically changed. The U.S., you know, had the world convinced that it's, you know, theoretical money, uh, asset-backed securities, derivatives, things that you don't even understand, that those were the economic powers. And that gave the U.S., you know, that gave London, that was the seat of economic power for London and, and New York. But this has caused people, you know, and therefore, 
New, uh, Russia was supposed to collapse, but Russia didn't collapse. And now the world is saying, whoa, it isn't that magical Wall Street stuff. It's people who have hard things, real things in the real world, like gas and gold and titanium. And that um, paradigm change is likely to change the, the flow of capital and, and add that to grabbing Russia's um, sovereign wealth fund. Over the long term and even the short term, I would think this is going to have a significant um, uh, effect on the flow of particularly speculative capital, Dan. Well, yeah, I mean, inflation is a real, it's a real game changer. I mean, when you have, I mean, first of all, inflation wreaks havoc with trade because um, the producers find it's often better to, to hold on to their goods, their products, rather than sell them because their products will appreciate more the longer they hold on to them. So when you have inflation, you have shortages, um, and you have uh, interruptions and in, in global trade, and also the advantage passes to those who produce primary commodities, uh, energy, wheat and grain, uh, fertilizer, etc. So yeah, so, so Russia, I mean, the, the ruble is now at record highs. It's amazing. I mean, the Americans expected the ruble to crash. Uh, and it's done precisely the opposite. Um, and uh, and so, so Russia has gas, Russia has grain, Russia has, has fertilizer, and that kind of puts it in a very good spot. And, uh, and America finds itself to be grossly overextended uh, economically and financially. Uh, its financial system is really very shaky. And so, yeah, so the world is looking at the U.S. and realizing the U.S. is a good deal weaker than it seemed a few months ago, and that other countries seem to be re- uh, reaping the benefits. And to that point, Orinoco Tribune has a piece, the world is facing a food shortage and inflation to preserve the throne of the U.S. And in their first paragraph, they say the U.S. claims that the rise in food and energy prices is due to the war waged by Russia against Ukraine, while the U.S. sanctions on Russia and its means of transport and payment reception indicate the opposite, Dan Lazar. It's totally the opposite. I mean, yes, the, the war has certainly exacerbated inflation, no question about it. But inflation has been rising since early 2021. Uh, and uh, really, from almost the moment that, that, that Joe Biden took office, you know, it, it was his bad luck. But, um, uh, but the uh, Food prices are skyrocketing, and uh, and malnutrition is spreading uh, throughout the global south. And this is serious business. I mean, 50 million people are now food insecure. That's a lot of people. That's a real tragedy. And there's no doubt that the U.S. prosecution of this war, the U.S. the U.S. sparking of this war, uh, has played a major role in creating this real crisis. You know, Dan, um, let me ask you this. I, I felt this way, and tell me if you think I'm, I'm wrong, because, you know, the powerful don't seem to be held accountable. I feel like that what the leaders in the EU and U.S. are doing are so egregious, probably not in the U.S., but a time will come in the EU where people look back and feel like these people should be held criminally responsible. They're going to wake up one day, could be next winter, really, really cold. They'll see their breath because, of, you know, they won't have any heat. But at some point, we, we're looking at it, we're evaluating it and saying this is outrageous what they're doing, the literal crimes against their own people. I feel like at 
at some point in Europe, some of these countries are going to say the people that did this need to go to jail. You know, in old times, they get their heads cut off. But what do you think about that uh, long term, Dan? I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I mean, look at um, uh, Mélenchon and Marine Le Pen had absolutely nothing in common with, with each other. Um, but the one thing they have in common is a is hostility to the war, the war in the Ukraine. That war is not their war. It's the it's the center's war, the, the, the centrist like Macron. Uh, and consequently, um, uh, support for the war is declining. And um, so therefore, the worse the war goes and the worse the the um, the economic uh, uh, effects become, uh, the more vulnerable Macron will become. And, and as goes Macron, so goes uh, uh, Joe Biden, uh, Boris Johnson, uh, Olaf Scholz, etc. So. Uh, so, yeah, the center, the center, the establishment, the ruling class, whatever you want to call it, they're going to pay. Who would have thought, you know, and I, I know that, uh, Dan, that you are old enough to remember when the United States was considered to be the breadbasket of the world. And now we find, as this uh, as this Orinoco Tribune piece says, Russia, not Ukraine, is considered the primary source of wheat globally, representing around 24 percent of the needs and consumption of the world's population. And the United States is 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 third behind Canada at 12.24 percent. Who would have thought that we would have gotten to the point where the United States was no longer considered the breadbasket of the world? Well, to be fair, I mean the U- the U.S. the U.S. produces a lot of other goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the so the U.S. economy is is highly sophisticated, and it just it does not rely on is not as reliant on uh, on agricultural exports uh, as say uh, as say Russia is. Uh, it's a very advanced economy. I mean, America's got a lot of problems, no doubt about it, but its economic clout is still considerable. And it, and it produces a lot of advanced manufactured goods. So uh, it also produces a lot of finance as well. So, I mean, the, the American economy is vulnerable, but, uh, but I still caution against, you know, against um, uh, underestimating it. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not asking that in terms of an estimation or underestimation of the economy. I'm just talking about the, the basic shift in the fundamental dynamic that at one point the United States was considered to be the breadbasket of the world, and we are now no longer uh, uh, that. That is now no longer the reality. That 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 was my only point. Yeah, that, that, that's that's a very interesting development. But but I tell you, the um, also the the way the way that the world has has come to rely on a on a half dozen major exporters is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, these these these, these mid ranking countries should be producing more of their own food. They should be less dependent on uh, on imports because we now know we now realize that that imports can be dangerous. Over reliance on on imports can be dangerous. So it's a global market. We got to get out, but that then takes us into a discussion about Monsanto and other corporations that control seeds in the, in the world and who can get access to what. We'll have to have a conversation about that at another point. Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. 
Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 